And so then it's still like you're learning to associate sex, which you're already, you know, trying to figure out, is this for pleasure? Is this like a task? Like, what is this? When you're right, is it a duty? What we're in the, in the message that we got then was you're kind of used as a vessel to, and like, this is the outcome, like getting pregnant and like, don't get pregnant. Welcome to the Models We Live By podcast, the podcast that explores how overcoming the mental models we all hold on to can help us grow to become better people. Hey Maddie, how are you doing? I am so good. How are you? I'm happy to be here. I'm doing good as well. And for those who don't know, Maddie has been on a podcast before. Anyone who did not listen to that episode, shame on you. No, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> we don't do shame, of course not, on this podcast. Not after we had Dr. Tina right, on this season. Not after that. <laughs> no shame on you. But you should go back and listen to that episode to get to know Maddie a little bit better so you have a better understanding of why I invited her over again. But for those who have not listened to you, who is Maddie and what is your purpose? Yes. Hello, hello. Um, I'm Maddie, and my purpose. Mish, that was that was a that's a big first question. Yeah. yeah, I think I'm slowly figuring it out and realizing it might not be as flat as I thought it once was. But I think that my purpose is to help people feel seen. Yeah. So that people don't just go through their time, especially when we've spent time together, feeling like walking away that they haven't been heard. I think that's that's part of my purpose. I love hearing that you say, I want to make people feel seen. That's the purpose of my life. And I totally noticed this. I said this in season one as well. You are excellent at making people feel seen. But before I'm asking you what you do for a living, can you tell me a little bit why you want to make people feel seen? You know, well, thank Thanks to therapy, I've really <laughs> learned that a lot of what we choose to focus on could be rooted in filling a hole or a scar or a cup that we didn't maybe feel like was filled for us growing up. And so taking that kind of frame, I just think that a lot of my early identity was built out of not feeling seen and not having a sense of belonging because belonging really is empowering and I think a lot about power dynamics and so right now I'm kind of milling on how a sense of community can really impact our trajectory in life and the choices that we make right in line with the kind of work that I do professionally, I think about youth who are a part of like local gangs, you know, and even if they don't want to be there, there's just this pool and belonging, right? Or, you know, pursuing career paths because of assumed sense of belonging, even if it's not resonating with what we want to do in our hearts. So yeah, you, your intro has given me some food for thought that I'm like currently processing. <laughs> but yeah. I think that's why feeling seen and helping others feel seen is really important to me. That is really epic. I like that. And especially since those who are listening, you know who you are. Most people don't agree with me on non-alienation or trying to maintain people's sense of belonging. So it's always good to meet other people that has that as part of their purpose. You know, I... 
thinking more about this is also reminding me that like the more that we feel comfortable alienating folks or not doing the hard work it can take to find through lines or like commonalities between individuals only does the work of the enemy. Like it only perpetuates separation. And that's just not what I'm in the business of, you know? And I think from like a spiritual level to societal ills, like they thrive on separation and alienation and othering people. And it's all of those are just pathways toward dehumanizing. Because at the end of the day, if we can't even all just recognize like we're human and having this really difficult human experience, then we haven't done the work to really lift up the causes and the people and the issues that we proclaim to be passionate about. And you just explained to me like this small little graph with panic on the outer ring and comfort in the, in the middle ring. Can you explain to those who are listening a little bit about that? For sure. So something that we talk about in the course that I teach at GW is this idea of the backfire effect. And so the backfire effect is this idea that when you hear information that doesn't fit within your schema or your mental models, it doesn't fit with the values that you feel like you represent or have built the home, the house of your identity in your brain, then you go into fight or fright. And a lot of that happens because we can easily be pushed into what's called a panic zone. So a lot of folks are familiar with the idea of a comfort zone, right? So that would be our inner ring. That's where we're really happy. We're receiving information, but we're like, this makes sense. Everything is very much a confirmation bias and not making us sweat at all. And then just outside of that is a really thin circle called our learning zone. And so a lot of times folks are like, get out of your comfort zone, you know, so that you can learn more. And we can do that. We are capable of doing that. But that learning zone is really small because what actually happens is that we get pushed into this large outer ring that's referred to as the panic zone. And that's when we can experience that backfire effect. And it really prohibits us from being able to learn and to grow because we're literally freaking out. Like this information is not what I learned. It rubs up on my values. It rubs up against how I was raised. I'm offended by this information. I mean, we see this on the news all day. Unfortunately, we see this in school board meetings recently about critical race theory. So anything like that is in that panic zone. So that's that idea of comfort zone, learning zone, and then the panic zone. That is super interesting. But you just glanced over the, the small little thing that you said, I teach a course at GW. What, what is it that you do exactly? I do a few things outside of just trying to survive America. I, um, I'm currently, you know, also getting through my PhD program. And one thing that I do is teach um, a master's level intro course on public service values. And so it's an opportunity. I call it a sandbox for students to just talk about race, talk about politics, everything that you're told not to talk about on a first date or at Thanksgiving. We want to talk about it because these are public policy students who are going to be the next members of Congress and legislative assistants on the Hill. So if you all aren't comfortable talking about race and naming racism or naming all of these isms that continue to perpetuate alienation and, and indifference, then we're doing you a disservice. So we talk about this idea of the backfire effect and getting out of your comfort zone and not navigating the panic zone so that they can be more responsible public servants. Super cool. 
that's one thing that you do. So you teach at GW, but you just already said it's one of the many things that you do your PhD students. What, what, what should we know more about Maddie? So um, I mentioned youth earlier and like the type of work that I do. I work for the District of Columbia. Um, and so I work for the Department of Youth Rehabilitation Services. So I'm a management analyst there. And basically any youth who is arrested or detained in the district, we're responsible for coordinating their care. And anytime they may be assigned to serve at one of like the youth jails or group homes or anything like that. So if you did get to know me during the first season, that is new information. Special. <laughs> so, yes. I have so many questions about how we treat people who are incarcerated or detained and force them to work. There is a lot there, but we also have a season four coming out in June, which we'll talk about then. I'm going to have you over again, if you don't mind. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refrain from asking those questions right now. This season, as everybody who has heard the previous episodes already know, is about sex. Woo! <laughs> so how we talk about sex or how we don't talk about sex, specifically the awkward phase in between talking about sex like a creeper too much and not talking about sex at all, where it's just flat out damaging to people. So... Before we head off on the bigger conversations that we talked about before, how do you think sexuality and the talk about intimacy affect your growing up and your everyday life? You know, I think you're also talking to a lot of folks who come from faith experience growing up and I identify as one of those individuals, grew up in the church, um, Southern Baptist, mega church, and... My parents also were raised in a really religious manner, but my mother actually, her upbringing was quite conservative. So Pentecostal, you know, not wearing skirts above the ankles, not showing your knees, things like that. And so I think a lot of her experience obviously transferred to me as the oldest daughter that she had too. And so a lot of what I absorbed about sexuality and sex, I got from her and her, I think her parents' lack of willingness and probably comfort talking to her about these ideas. And I... Not to excuse them, but to give them some grace. I think a lot of the lack of discussion about sex in her household that she, you know, also perpetuated raising us was under the guise of protecting. If I can keep them, their bodies covered, if I can not make these ideas like sex and sexual abuse a reality, maybe it'll protect them somehow. And so... I received similar messages growing up and it was a long time before I could even say the word thigh. I remember being in middle school and, you know, something would like touch my leg, but it was like, I couldn't specify if it was like my upper leg because I was so uncomfortable with my body because everything felt so forbidden. And I think, you know, also being at church and growing up and seeing all the women that were like on stage were also very covered. Robes just to play the piano, the choir always in long robes. I never saw women. I mean, let alone, I'm thinking of the first black pastor that we had in the pulpit at the church that I attended growing up and the image that's coming to mind is seeing her wear heels and thinking wow how like adult and like mature of her to be wearing heels because it felt maybe like strong and I couldn't like 
match those words together because of how like gender and sexuality like were so under discussed. Because I'm like, I'm literally picturing the woman. And right now, I'm, I remember being so fixated on how strong she looked just because she was wearing heels. And again, she had on a robe almost touching her ankles. And so there was no comfort level with body, like your physical self at all, let alone disgust, not at all. And I, like looking back, it's very infuriating to me, like hearing myself reflect on that moment because that is outlandish that as a young like woman that that was so striking to me yet she still her whole entire body was still covered and I thought wow she's so empowered because she was wearing heels wow yeah and so I think that just contributed to also then going through like you know the awkward middle school years which happens where you're like maybe having more questions about your body and then teachers or, you know, health class is starting to talk about the changes that your body will go through and having zero comfort. I would never ask my mom about like a period. No, no. I can never picture young Maddie being like, mom, what's happening or what's this? No, absolutely not. So what did you do? Who educated you? Literally, it wasn't until I joined a sorority and college that I had I you know I was around other women of the same age and some similar a lot of similar backgrounds and I remember asking one of my sorority sisters to explain a tampon to me in college so I was definitely and I, I had to be like 20 um yeah and like we never talked about like breasts or anything or like you know this is what your body is gonna go through nothing like that and I don't think I would have asked and I think it's because of the lack of conversation that my parents had. And I also know it's because my first like exposure to sex, like in a real sense that like, wasn't on TV, wasn't my choice. So the shame that also comes with, well, this feels different or this is happening to me and I'm confused. I would never feel comfortable having that conversation, especially like when the the stories that you hear in the Bible are about like Eve, you know, making a mistake related to her body. And now, oh, my body is like I'm naked. Realizing nakedness is bad. I don't think that those are even ideas or stories that I've felt comfortable challenging until I was in my 20s. That's pretty deep. And I recognize some of it in, in my own way from back in the days when I was a little boy, I had overexposure to sexuality. So I knew way too much about it, unfortunately, right? Terrible upbringing sexually, but transitioning and seeing changes happen to my body and just me thinking that I can ask other people, hey, were your boobs on fire as well when they grew? And people are like, what? What are you talking about, Mish? Understanding that there's different comfort levels there. I was like, okay, I can just ask other women, right? What, what their experiences were. No, I cannot just talk about it with anybody. Well, of course, there's the level of discomfort that people have with trans women in general, but even people that see me fully as woman, it's like, oh, that's an, uh, that's an interesting question that you ask there. How do you, how do you find out about those things? In my case, it was a mixture of Discord and Reddit on one hand. And on the other hand, like, that's what we have now, right? You did not have that when you were a kid. Neither, neither did I. And on the other hand, people that are comfortable sharing a little bit more or that did have women's bodies are all different right so 
Ugh. It is complicated. And something that I talked with Kim about in all the way in episode one of this season of how to have sex in general. How do you have sex in general as a woman? And I'm not even talking about same sex sex, right? I happen to be married to a woman. It's very relevant right now because we have my final stage, in my case, my final stage of surgery. I have a conversation this Wednesday with a surgeon, with a plastic surgeon for reconstruction. So hopefully no more surgeries after that. But that's a big one. That is, you know, three to four days in a hospital, two weeks in bed, and then 90 days of swollen vulva, essentially. So all those things are all of a sudden getting even more relevant where I'm like, number one, I don't feel the, I don't feel pleasure the same way already since like, a week or two after I started taking hormones. I'm like, wait, my body feels different. Whether it's psychological or biological or combination, I don't really care. It's just difference. So now I have this whole trajectory ahead of me that I talk with girlfriends about this. I'm like, okay, how do you enjoy sex? I don't even know how to get aroused. So real. And you know, all I can think about is, you know, in the er like the early days of like having consensual sexual experiences in my head was still, oh, this is something happening to me. This isn't something that I get to like I, there was no sense of power in it besides knowing, oh, this is something that the other person wants as well. So I think, you know, how do you actually have sex is a huge question. And the way that it's introduced to you impacts your answer. I remember the one time um, my dad ever talked about sex with us, my sister and I. Note, my brother was not there, oh. only to my sister and I. And the conversation was, don't bring children into this house. And so then it's still like you're learning to associate sex, which you're already, you know, trying to figure out is this for pleasure is this like a task like what is this when it, you're right is it a duty what where and that and the message that we got then was you're kind of used as a vessel to and that like this is the outcome like getting pregnant and like don't get pregnant no one else talked about sex or like well is there anything else there are there any other components to that no and then of course like the intersection with gender there like you're not having the same conversation with my brother and you're also like the tone of it was very like angry and condemning so it's like okay well if I do choose to have sex I'm still opting into something being done to me and not opting into something that I'm a part of like an experience that I'm a part of. Oh, that reminds me so much of what, I won't say her name. She's our family therapist. But if you are listening to this podcast, thank you for listening. But she right away, when Kim and I came to our first conversation there, let's, let's define sex and intimacy a little bit here. Let's stop seeing sex as some sort of action or let's stop using the word sex if you want to say play or intimacy or something bigger why are you so concerned about having sex Mish if it's a whole experience you two now have to come together and try to find that intimacy together what what works for both Kim and for me which is such an interesting conversation because I was not comfortable I said this before on the podcast I was not comfortable having sex as a man it's traumatic to be to be completely honest so when you say it's something that was done to me, 
I identify a little bit there because I was like, yeah, I cannot not have sex. And I also enjoy it, but I also don't enjoy it at the same time. And this is way too complicated. I just want a black and white answer. But there is no black and white answer when it comes to sexuality. Sexuality is, nothing is black and white in sexuality. And what I like today does not have to be what I like next year. Empowered queen answer, period. Because that, again, goes back to what I mean about, like, there's so much power in everything, right? And then if we also want to have this conversation continued about, like, belonging, if this is another human being that I'm opting into this experience with, let's co-create a space where we both feel comfortable and a sense of belonging and not built in shame or duty or control. So much of, I feel like, what we're taught early on about sex is about control, and there's no freedom in that. There's no, I can't find home and belonging in a situation in which I'm under control, like being controlled by someone else. And sex is so much about trust and empowering others so that they can make choices And to your point, my choice might be different tomorrow. Or we can both opt out of having this experience and still grow in our intimacy, but not have what a textbook may call sexual intercourse and still be in maybe even more in love or have more of a sense of connectivity months from now without having like the sexual component, right? And it's taken me a lot a long time to learn that and to also feel comfortable enough with my own body to say like this is what I like this is what I don't like or this is what I don't want to do saying no in such a vulnerable and compromised situation is very difficult for me I'll speak for myself but intimacy is so powerful because it's so spiritual like the raw the rawness of humanity, I feel like you can really touch when you are really intimately entwined with another person or people. And it's just so beautiful. And so to not give children the foundation to be building their capacity for those conversations by the time they reach adulthood or by the time they choose to have sex with other folks is such a disservice. Like, I think I would be a completely different person sometimes if I was empowered to own my body or I could say body parts without feeling uncomfortable. Like my confidence, my self-concept would be completely different. My sexual encounters would have been different. I believe I would have been more empowered to say no or to set boundaries, you know? There's so much in there. Let me start with the spiritual part first because when you said it, it just unlocked something in my brain. When you have intimacy with someone, when you're in a bedroom naked or so, right, with each other, that's intimate, but it's also vulnerable, and it has to do with surrender so much, right? And I'm, I'm really liking how you're linking this to spirituality, and I want to think more and more about how we can bring spirituality into uh, the bedroom, if you will, because there's a sense of divineness in there if i surrender because i have so much trust towards kim that's that's a huge deal but ask me do i trust god that much i would say "Mm, absolutely not but kim is a human and god is like god you know 
that should not be the way things are. So I just wonder, do you see some sort of a connection? I know this is like coming out of nowhere, this question, because it like just came up in my brain. Like, do you think there's some sort of a connection between how we view surrender? That's very good. And I think so. I think there is a direct like connection between our ability to surrender in intimate relationships with humans and our ability to replicate that in our relationship with God. And I, I believe that because if I'm vulnerable, like with my body, but I'm not showing up, like I'm not present mentally, there's no intimacy there. I'm, right. I'm allowing my bot, my physical self to have this experience and it's going to roll off my back the next day. Like I, I'm fine. I, I didn't, it didn't phase me. But if I'm in a vulnerable state with a trusted partner, but we've gotten into an argument, I can't, like the trust is damaged a little bit. It blocks me from being able to be intimate completely because I feel like trust has been violated and that is a direct correlation to my vulnerability. So when I think about that with God, it's like, well, God, I was just giving you all my trust because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. So like, here's my body. I'm showing up every week at church. Here's my body. I'm going to go to the soup kitchen to serve. Here's my body. Like it's all transactional but it's not hitting me at a deeper intimate level. But if I'm saying, God, no, I, I deeply trust you with the pain that I'm going through. I'm showing up on Sunday physically because I need you and I long for our connection. I could see myself having those same thoughts and ideas with a human partner, you know? And so it's the level at which we do opt in to being vulnerable. Like, are we just doing it with our bodies? Like, are we just, are we really worshiping? Or are we lip syncing is kind of what that makes me think of. And I think that my intimacy with God has even grown the more I learn about how shallow my intimacy has been with humans. You know, like I used to say, like people would always say, Madison, you have so many friends. And it'd be like, I have a lot of pennies. I don't have like four quarters, like probably have a hundred pennies. But then on the, uh, like on the faith practice side of it, I could see people assuming like Madison, you probably have a really strong relationship with God. Like you're always at church, especially at college, always at church, always at this Bible study, always at this thing. But I knew that the intimacy with God was lacking. Like instead of having pennies, I wish I had like quarters or half dollars worth of faith. But it was the lack of intimacy. It was a lack of going beneath the surface and not just showing up with my body. And I think that that's where the transformation happens, where it's like, this is someone or partners that I want to opt into. And I'm willing to like show who I fully am. And I, you know, the more we peel back layers of ourselves and allow our partners to see that grows our intimacy. And I see the same thing with God. The funny thing with God though is he already knows what layers are there. <laughs> and it's our, you know, shame and guilt and everything that we've been like allowing to, pal not even allowing because we don't get to choose every, all the traumas that we're exposed to. But there's a layer or a level of hiding and we can't hide an intimacy or it'll just stay on the surface, you know? And I love the idea of God just waiting for us to just be like, okay, God, I know you know about this, but I want to bring it to you. Like, I want to talk to you about it. I want you to be with me here. And I, I feel like those are echoes of what we say to our partners, you know, I, you might know about this, you might not, but I need you and I need you to be with me here. And that just like 
births more and deeper intimacy on both levels, I think. I just think about like God being some sort of an author of consent and God setting up that whole relationship the way we should, we ought to have relationship. Like you said, if if God is an all-knowing being, which I happen to believe, right? But what are we doing? We, we don't even have to go to God, yet God waits, yet God is yearning to hear from us. How, how much different is that from, from our partners? And it makes me wonder why we separated sexuality into its own zone in general. Like, I do not know when sexuality became its own thing instead of part of the holistic human experience. So what in the world happened there (laughs) if we have so many parallels with sexuality and surrender and trusts? I love that sexuality requires trust. Otherwise, it's just a checkbox thing, right? I'm just wondering why, why would we do that and why would we not take that as an opportunity to grow as human beings and have those? Well, we have those exercises where you, where you drop yourself in the arms of people and we call that trust. That's not trust. That's just like solid decency that they're not going to drop you on the floor. And then I still don't trust you because I don't like it. That's not true trust. True trust, like in the bedroom or with God, which is topics that we typically cannot connect with each other. That's taboo. But true trusts, if I can give my all, which is in general what I'm yearning for in sexuality, to give my all. Like whenever we have this conversation, Kim and I, I say, I want to give you my all. That's, that's the pinnacle of sex. And you cannot have that with conflict. You need to first talk things out. You need to wait until the other person is ready to talk those things out with you. There's stuff that needs to be resolved before you can reach that ultimate experience, if you will. I'm almost, I'm almost 40. I am 40. I'm 41. How can it take that long to talk about those things, to have vocabulary to express what trauma we are going through? Yeah, all of that makes complete sense. And they're really important and big questions. It seems a lot like I'm not a parent. And like I mentioned at the top of our discussion about my own parents, I think a lot of it is parenting out of fear and under the guise of I'm giving this person protection. When what we learn as we go through life and what we now know from many studies, especially regarding how, you know, humans develop. One of the best things that we can do is give young people the language that they need to communicate. When a a child is violated, they can feel that something is wrong. They can feel it. I don't think we give children enough credit for knowing who they are and what they like and what they don't like and what they believe and what they don't believe to be okay. And so empowering youth to say, your feelings are validated or they're valid. And I'm getting the sense that you're a bit uncomfortable or are you feeling nervous? Those are really important pathways to then allowing them to kind of fill it out more. I mean, there are a lot of techniques like with play therapy that we can use where youth will actually 
use dolls or Legos even to kind of mirror the experiences that they're having, especially if it's one that their very smart brains are working to repress, knowing that it's going to hurt them. Having similar experiences that you just shared, it's it's wild what comes to mind when you are an adult and allowing those layers to be peeled back and realizing that you experience trauma, sexual trauma is probably one that we repress the most because of all of the shame and guilt and lack of language to really articulate what's happened to us. So I would just encourage, honestly, everyone who interacts with youth to empower them to say the words, like name the body parts, to also talk about things in a way that doesn't make them feel like if something happens to you, it's your fault because the fault and shame that we place on youth is another reason, like even when they're going through therapeutic experiences, that they hesitate. Or even when we think about adults or teenagers and young adults who don't begin like letting out their accusations, you know, about someone who has sexually assaulted them or molested them till they're later in life, it's because of all of the shame and not having the words. You might as well give them the words, right? Um, I have cousins who are raising little boys and talking about, oh, he discovered his penis and like has all these questions or thinks it's really funny. And But when they meet that with shame, like, no, don't touch that. Or, you know, make sure you keep that away or put that away. Don't touch it. That's a pee-pee. You only use it to pee. How does that impact, you know, seeing you jump and be afraid when they bring up these body parts? That's already showing them, oh, I should be afraid of these body parts. I shouldn't do these things. I shouldn't show anyone else that I have this. And so later down the line, going through puberty, what does it look like? I'm not going to talk about these body parts with my mom. And then it becomes, oh, well, now someone has touched that area and I don't want to bring it up because when I learned about this, these are the ideas and feelings that came up for like with the trusted adults around me. And now I'm repressing without even realizing assault <laughs> that's happened. Children are so smart. Like when they see an emotion that we're evoking, be it fear or shame, they're going to absorb that and then mirror that. I had no clue what I was doing starting season two talking about sex. I just noticed that this is a conversation that we need to have. So first of all, thanks so much for being open about it. I'm interested to hear a little bit more about what you've seen in your professional line of work or in your research that specifically relates to how we don't talk about sex and sexuality, especially when it comes to things like assaults what that, we, that we just talked about. And also the aftercare. So on one hand, what, what would you say to parents and caregivers and foster parents and, and foster homes and stuff like that? And what have you seen? And on the other hand, how can we change the narrative? How can we change our mental models to see sex as something that belongs locked and closed? It's laced with shame and it definitely does not belong in faith spaces. How, how can we remedy that? Speaking from my own experiences, I'm not sure which question to talk about first. The latter is front of mind. So thinking about like the aftercare. So like, what do we do now, right? We can't just wait for all of the parents now to just start having better conversations and just wait for the next generation. Because what this has obviously resulted in is a lot of 
particularly assaults against women and you know, like violence, you know, and but not only women, right? Like sexual violence needs to stop and we have to get to it sooner than later. Like I said, we can't just wait for the next generation to have, you know, better ideas of how to approach this. And I do think that it's incumbent upon systems like faith traditions, but particularly even within those systems, people and councils and boards, bodies of people in positions of power to really call it out. So many of us default to power. I mean, it it makes sense. Like we are a very hierarchical society, right? So if someone, we presume someone to be in a position of authority over us, then their beliefs and ideas and statements have a lot of weight. So within the like church in particular, the Christian church, we need more pastors talking about it. We need family and children's ministers to be willing to have these conversations and for it to be in not a lackadaisical way, but in a very intentional, like this is a curriculum for youth pastors on how to talk about the body and sex because if we can to kind of help us get to the conversation about sex which is what we really need to talk about let's at least give people the language to talk about their bodies and like the comfort level to talk about their bodies right elementary school teachers will probably tell you funny stories all day about all of the funny names and things that they experience with their students talking about their body so the children aren't not talking about these things But when they're coming in with all of these different nicknames for body parts, (laughs) because of the shame that we have with the anatomical, like scientific names that these body parts have, we're already doing them a disservice, right? So what does it look like to be in a faith tradition where the leaders at the church are comfortable having these conversations and those conversations can help supplement the conversations that caregivers are giving or having with their children outside of church. Is there an opportunity for us to get on the same page? I think so. Like when I think about churches that I've attended or even when I volunteered for like children's church, like to help watch the kids during service, (laughs) like kids are funny and they are bright. So like Once again, let's stop underestimating them and stop projecting our fears onto them. If my family didn't project the fears that they had on all of the things that sex would do, which was literally only get me pregnant and end my life, that was it. I feel like I would have been a much more empowered woman. I feel like I would have known what I liked and what I didn't like sooner. I feel like I would have known, oh, this is a boundary that's being crossed. Mm -hmm. Like someone is grabbing my breast in the back of a classroom. That's inappropriate. I mean, I literally remember being in second grade and this kid would always get in line behind me and fondle me. And that was in second grade. And I've never talked to anyone about that. I just knew this was wrong. But he was doing it all the time. And I thought in my head, a teacher's, an adult's going to see this and make him stop one day. And it just kept going. But I did not have the words to even tell you what body parts he was touching back then. If someone had intervened or asked me for a story, I would not have been able to tell you. And I probably would have cried, just completely broken down, you know. And so it's like having experiences like that, that really are defining what 
the boundaries of your body are, which don't exist. That's what I learned. Boundaries don't exist here for me. And no one was giving me the language to even let alone name the body parts, but to articulate that something was happening to me without me feeling like I was the one who was going to be in trouble for it. So early intervention, early conversation. I pray that if I become a parent, I don't put that fear onto my children. Again, that reminds me of this book that I mentioned to Mish earlier called What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape. And when I listened to the speaker talk, I was so struck by her saying, I talk to my daughter about rape and I don't say, this will never happen to you. I hope this never happens to you. She says, I don't. I talked about what rape is, what happened to me when I was raped. And these are things to do if it happens to you. Not pretending that it's not a possibility or a reality that women are having was, I'm sure, a really difficult conversation for her. And of course, she wouldn't wish that on anyone. But shielding her under that false guise of protection by not having the conversation she believed would have been the bigger disservice than saying, don't wear this because that'll increase your chances of being raped. No, she never said anything like that. She presented it as, this is a reality that could definitely happen, and I hope it doesn't. But if it does, this is what we're going to do. This is what you do. So those types of empowered and difficult conversations, I think, could really just transform society. I saw this thing during the pandemic that was, women, how would you live your life differently if men had a like 12 a.m. curfew? And there are some really lively responses. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that is wild. And you know what all of it boiled down to? Fear of sexual violence being perpetrated against me Uh because I want to go on a jog at 2 a.m. or I have to walk my dog at 3 a.m. That is insane. The fact that an entire group of people govern their lives based on the potential that a man is going to violate them sexually. Come on, people. We need to talk about it. So if that is a reality, then it could not hurt to have less shame-filled conversations about sex and bodies as early as possible. You talked about how my research has impacted this, and I'm afraid to talk about it because of the intersectionality conversation that you're having. I don't want to jump the gun. I will say, though, that my dissertation research revolves a lot around slavery and how tenets of slavery have endured and manifest today, particularly among women and children experiencing homelessness. Uh, And so a lot of that research exposed me to interesting literatures about the regulation of female bodies that is rooted in slavery, particularly there are like accounts. So I also shout out this book, Accounting for Slavery, and it's basically a gateway drug into medical apartheid and some other really interesting novels where fearless scholars are talking about how individuals who owned enslaved women would write letters back and forth to each other, giving them tips on how to regulate the female body to increase their capital by the end of each year, right? So tips on when to impregnate her, tips on how to keep her subordinate by molesting and regulating who and who she could not have sexual intercourse with, being really intentional about breeding enslaved African women, in America. And so it's wild to even think about letters being sent in the mail back and forth between humans that are regulating the female form. And so I think, especially as a, a someone who identifies as a black woman, a lot of that generational trauma and practices of 
that guise of I'm protecting my black daughter by not talking about sex, I think are all still rooted in that as well, right? Like it's really complex. The things that we carry are real, you know? And so coupled with faith, coupled with the practice of enslaving people and regulating their bodies for the benefit of a slave owner, coupled with, you know, the modern day issues that we have with all of these other isms and intersections, there's a lot that needs to be unpacked, but we have to like really buckle down and just say, I'm going to have these conversations with my children. Good Lord. That is dark, right? And at the same time, sheds a light on so much systemic problems with our Western society. These conversations, having these conversations on a leadership level, that's definitely something that struck me within my research and talking about how we send our leaders to churches unprepared. And and not just with, oh, they don't know HR, they don't know organizational leadership, but also they cannot spot things. If a elementary school teacher cannot spot, oh, oh, that's uh, Maddie there in the line and she does not look comfortable. If an elementary school teacher that should be trained for that already cannot spot it, how much more can a pastor not spot that? Or children's ministers who love what they do and bless their hearts that they want to do this, they also need training there. They need trauma-informed leadership training. They need even more than trauma-informed leadership. Like, how do you spot harassment under seven-year-olds? I don't don't even know. More than I care about teaching and preaching, I care about shepherding. The idea that you see people and community and that's the priority. It's really interesting to think about like how even when we think about correcting injustice, it's about power sharing. Do pastors believe in power sharing in a real way? And what does power sharing look like in a church model, traditional church model? Maybe maybe you should do another PhD after this. <laughs> Student law says no. See, you hear we need funding so that Maddie can do research, get a PhD in theology, specifically theological le- leadership. I would, I would love to see that, just saying. Let's start a GoFundMe. This goes back to my points from our first season discussion about nonprofits in general, which churches always fall under. We have a lot of heart and theory and ideas in the nonprofit space, but that doesn't mean that we don't need to also pursue our management skill, like toolkit. We need to know how, like the rawness of leadership. What does it mean? Like there is a science to leadership. There is a science to how you keep an organization running. There is a science to managing ministers. There just is. And I mean, the American administrative state has been in existence since the early 1900s. So there's lots of literature out there. Business schools have been teaching this for years. So to me, yeah, it doesn't make sense, especially when we're thinking about very large institutions, but that doesn't let our small institutions off the hook. Management is, we need to manage households. We need to manage churches. Every space in which leaders are called require real skill set development. And maybe the answer lies also within the context of our culture. Maybe there was a time where the typical MDiv and the course load that an MDiv had was sufficient because the church had 
multiple people working. So there were maybe people that took on those roles. But today, specifically in non-traditional churches, there's not. So management is contextual. If you're an adaptive leader, you are adaptive to the context of your congregation, if you speak about churches. So in order to manage your church, you need to first see them. You need to first know who they are, where they are, what is the gap between where you want your congregation to be and where they are right now. And within that gap, yeah, guaranteed sexual trauma is there. Dare I say, a lot of sexual trauma happens in the church. And also, once again, because of how much power church leaders have, like how much influence they have over young people, a lot of church hurt is likely sex hurt. And if, you know, religion, our faith is so core to who we are as humans, how can our sexuality not be? So we need for those conversations to be happening in the same space. We need them. Like if church is empowering me every Sunday to be a good person, to be a good steward of the earth, then it also should be a space where I feel good talking about my body and the way my body is used. So... That's my, that's my gripe. That's a very, very good gripe to have. And also, I have so much more questions for you. And again, for those who have become a fan base for the models we live by, Maddie Club. I know you're <laughs> out there. I know you're out there. We will have Maddie back on our season about intersectionality, which I think right now is going to be season four, which will be there in June. We have talked about so many things and I asked the same question in season one, but I'm going to ask it a little, little bit different because in season one, I asked, what would you like to tell to the millions of Maddies out there? So I'm going to ask the same question, but I'm going to ask you to limit it to specifically this topic. What would you have liked to hear when you were six years old or 12 years old or even your age right now? Yes, that's a great question. And who I am today would tell younger Maddie or any Maddies out there that can relate to any part of my story that I shared is that sex is okay. It's a beautiful, powerful, empowering experience, but it's also a lot more not complicated, but intricate and like beautifully intricate than what people are telling you it is. It's far more than intercourse. You know, it, it can be a really beautiful thing. And don't be afraid to ask questions of your partner and don't be afraid to set boundaries. Um, Thank you so much for being on the podcast again. I am so excited to have you on this conversation and I'll really look forward to our next conversation as well. Yes, anything, anytime for you, Mish. I love you and I really enjoy everything that you're doing with the podcast. So happy to be here. And yeah, I'll see y'all next time. This has been the Models We Live By podcast. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoy this content, it would mean a lot to me if you look me up on Instagram or TikTok as Mish Van Essen. The music is by AGST. Looking forward to sharing with you again next time.